create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. While preachers preach of evil fates, teachers teach that knowledge waits, can lead to hundred-dollar plates, goodness hides behind its gates, but even the President of the United States sometimes must have to stand naked. Those lyrics are from Bob Dylan's song, It's Alright Ma, I'm Only Bleeding. In my opinion, they say a lot about the stories that tell all of us how we should live. Preachers preach, teachers teach, and a lot of us believe everything they say, and it makes us feel good about ourselves. But at the end of the day, even the President of the United States sometimes must have to stand naked. And to stand naked, you have to reveal the truth behind your masks. Hey, hello, storytellers, and welcome to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I'm your host, Louis DiBianco. We're fortunate that our host, Audible, is enriching lives. They are offering you, our storytellers, a free audiobook download of your choice, plus a one-month free trial of all of Audible service, and you get to choose from more than 180,000 titles. Simply go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power and take advantage of this wonderful gift. Remember that this show is enriched by our dialogue with you. So keep your comments and inspired thoughts coming. Send them to Lewis, L-O-U-I-S, at changeyourstorypodcast.com. Today's guest is a smart, funny, bold, sexy woman. She spent a portion of her life standing naked. Actually, she was moving naked. She was an exotic dancer, a stripper, who learned a lot about men, about women, about the truth behind our masks. She learned it by exposing her body and teasing the truth out of people. She did all of that without compromising her soul. Later in life, she became an award-winning real estate professional. She is also a singer, an author, with an exciting new book that you will hear about today. And she is a very, very proud mother of her 16-year-old daughter, Lena. Get excited because today she's here to stand naked, to reveal truth about her life that may shine a light on yours. Sonia Cote, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Hello, Lewis. Oh my goodness, what a wonderful intro. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Well, uh, you're quite welcome. And I tell many of my guests who thank me that I may have read it, but you wrote it. I did, indeed. I yes, did. Yes, you I did. <laughs> you did. You wrote more than the book, darling. <laughs> <laughs> so let's begin with, um, did you have a childhood dream of what you wanted to be when you grew up? Absolutely, I did. I was, uh, I was quite convinced that I was going to end up being a singer and actress, which is precisely what I ended up being. 
And I, I remember thinking at about age five, when everybody was saying they wanted to be, my brothers wanted to be firemen or a police officer, or my father was in broadcasting and was a personality in Quebec, and my mother was a writer. And uh, I thought, no, I want to be an actress and a singer. And that never wavered, never wavered. So That's... I guess I got lucky. I knew it from, from yeah, very, very young age. You know, I don't believe that any of this is luck. It's wonderful that you knew. Yeah, that, that's great. Who would you say? Yeah, I, don't, I don't know if it was luck or anything. I, I, I'm a very forceful person, and I was even a forceful child. So obviously I, I tend to make things happen, and I still have that kind of personality. But really artists are they're born, and sometimes they know that from early on. And I was in a family that supported pretty much any artistic endeavor that we could come up with. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Who influenced you the most when you were a child? I'd have to say that a lot of singers did. When I was about nine or ten, my father took a box of uh, LPs, you know, those those vinyl records. He had been a DJ before he landed a job as a broadcaster and journalist for CBC. And he he brought them down and he, he played a couple of tracks for me. And the first one was this woman, Mahalia Jackson, singing gospel. And that voice was so arresting. There's no other word for it. If you've heard Mahalia Jackson, you know what I'm talking about. She just has this deep voice that almost sounds, it could be a man or a woman, and, and a wail to her as well when she's up on the higher registers. And I started to cry. It really affected me that much. And then the next record he played was Ella Fitzgerald, uh, Big Shiny Stockings was the song. I'll never forget this. And I decided at that moment that that's the kind of music that I wanted to sing. So eventually my idols became Lena Horne, Shirley Bassey, Ella Fitzgerald, Peggy Lee, and of course a lot of the Canadian artists and Quebec artists that I grew up with. Ginette Renault was also one, a real powerhouse singer from Quebec and uh, Patsy Galland, and then, our, our, of course, our famous Canadian Anne Murray. I had every one of her records. <laughs> How old were you when you first had this experience of hearing the song and crying? I was about eight or nine. And uh, then the first concert followed up with uh, my dad brought me to see the opera singer Leontine Price. And again, it was that just that feeling of awe that these diva, these powerhouse singers, these women, and, and mostly uh, women of color who, uh, you know, had we had very little chance of seeing them in Quebec at the time. But my father, his, his, his musical uh, knowledge was, his breadth of knowledge was quite impressive. So he was, he fostered that in me, for sure. What I find so wonderful about this story is that you vividly told it about hearing the song as if it happened yesterday. And that's what's so remarkable to me about people and about life, that if it's a, a momentous, if it's a big moment that hits us at a core level, doesn't matter yes. if, it, if it happened 30 or 40 years ago, it's like it happened yesterday. You know? Very much so. Very much so. I remember being really rooted in music and the arts, for sure. That was the one thing that actually grounded me more than anything else. Wow, it's beautiful. Yeah. Now, what was your social-like life when you were an adolescent? Oh, dear. <laughs> Not really there. I was an outcast. I was a complete outcast. Because I was singing all of these old songs um, from about 13, 14, 15, 
I was doing I was doing jazz and bars with bands, and I was I was also doing song and dance shows of musical reviews from the 1940s and 50s. So I was not a popular kid. I mean, we were all you know all the kids were listening to like Cheap Trick and Sticks and April Wine, and <laughs> and I was listening to you know a lot of the older stuff. So I didn't really have a big social circle around me. No. Sonia, from what I picked up in your book, there were other reasons why you felt like an outcast. Can you talk Very about that? Very much, yeah. Can you talk well, about Well, I was, um, sure, I can talk about it. I, I wrote about it, and I'm so happy that I did. I was a sexual abuse uh, victim from a very young age. There was a neighbor that uh, we lived next door to, and I spent a lot of time at their house because his two daughters were friends of mine, and I was two when that started. And we moved away when I was five. So a lot of my very, very early life was deeply affected by feeling like I had somehow invited this bizarre uh, series of events. And later I was to learn, of course, that very young sexual abuse victims never quite form fully as people. Um, our, our identities are somewhat shattered if they even had a chance to form at all. So... That it leaves you with a feeling of being an outcast in almost everything you do. You're separate from the world. And you have no words for these things either at that age. You have no words. So who are you to tell and how do you even know that it's wrong? You get a sense that it's somehow not not right. You get a sense that it's it's strange and it's not comfortable. But there's a certain feeling of being special as well that's also very confusing for a lot of kids that have been abused. And then it, and then it didn't stop there. I developed very early as a young woman. I was I was by 12, 13. I was fully grown. I was like five, nine, and a bit, and uh, you know wearing D-cup bras, and I look very much like an adult. And that didn't that didn't help either in a school full of full of kids. Thank you for sharing that. You know, uh, to my storytellers listening, I asked Sonia that question for a very specific reason, for you to think about this. If you meet Sonia today, she is stunning. She's beautiful. She's vivacious. And if that woman said to you as an adolescent, I felt like a social outcast, you probably wouldn't believe her. Because we have, <laughs> it's true, we have stories in our heads. When we hear that, oh, if you were an outcast, you were probably the ugly duckling. No. And what she just revealed is very, very powerful. So thank you, Sonia. Thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. I think it's necessary to talk about these things. Uh-huh. Along those lines, what conflicting feelings did you have as a young girl with a woman's body? Well, many. I'm sure that a lot of uh, the listeners out there can relate to this. Uh, women, and possibly men too, who end up being very tall and very developed young men. We, we have adults that relate to us as other adults uh, in such a, um, it's an immediate way. It's like it's dropping you into an adult world before you even have the, the social skills or, or the, the intellect to, to be able to handle it. And at the time, I mean, I'm, I'm 52 now, so it's, you know, different times now. We talk about these things. I certainly talk a lot about these things with my daughter as much to prevent it from happening to her, which I've thankfully done, uh, as to give her the social skills to be an eloquent teenager and relate to adults so that she can get a leg up in the world. Back then, it was a very different world. We didn't talk about these things and nobody was really comfortable bringing them up. So there was a lot of um, shoving these things into the closet. And as a result, grown men would come on to me or leer at me or find ways to be near me 
And uh, I, I didn't know how to handle it. I also felt responsible for that. I felt like it was somehow my fault that I had incited lust in these men. And I couldn't, I couldn't go to my mother and say, well, I'm really uncomfortable. I, I didn't know how to handle that. And my mother has her own story, of course, as to what happened to her uh, to lead her to be uh, somewhat filled with shame when talking about uh, sexuality with her children. My parents had uh, a, a tumultuous relationship, but it certainly was filled with a, a healthy sex life. <laughs> I always chalked it up to my parents being fighters in the bedroom and out, but um, there were only two states for them. There was fighting and then there was the other F word. And it was just like, <laughs> it was unbelievable. It would go from one to the other. And that was the extremes that we had. But in terms of talking to me, her only daughter about these things, she just didn't feel comfortable with it. And I'm not sure all of her, I, I don't know all of her reasons, but I know that some of them were rooted in her own experiences. So it left me out in the cold very much. I didn't know how to handle it. Hmm. I want to come back for a moment to something you said a few minutes ago, that when a child is abused at a very young age, that they don't fully develop mm -hmm. as, as human beings. Now, I'm sure that there's a degree of truth to that, but I love to explode myths. And in fact, we opened with a myth-busting set of lyrics from uh, Mr. Bob Dylan about mm -hmm. the stuff that we're taught. Because the reason I'm saying all of this is you obviously are a very articulate, mature woman who's responsible, who takes care of her life, who finds joy, who contributes. So that's not, a person who hadn't developed would not have those qualities. So at some point you had a, um, it may have been a big challenge, but you had a breakthrough. I did. I had more than one. I think uh, life is never a straight line. I no. think there have been moments where I've bumped up my awareness. I had to reclaim parts of myself over a couple of decades. And um, it wasn't easy. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of work that went on of me and me. But there's also a lot of um, forgiveness that had to happen as well. Because someone who has been abused so young and who did not have a support system uh, in place to, to deal with those things, I was left on my own to find those support systems. But also, contrary to that, I would literally run headlong into risky situations and problematic friendships and relationships. And, and I would do this because I'm a, I'm a type A personality. You know, it had its good things and its bad things. It was good that I was a type A and I was very loud and, and, and forceful, say, in my arts. Um, you know, to become a singer and actor, it's, it's not easy to stand up there in front of everybody and literally shout your way to the top. But conversely, I was that way in my personal life as well. And that tends to be rather destructive when you don't put the proper framework around that. Mm -hmm. So all the while I was learning how to be a whole human being, I was making some rather spectacular mistakes that make up for this great book <laughs> I've written. And I think a lot of people, again, are going to relate to this because while I may have done an inordinate amount of them, everybody's had at least a couple of these things happen to them too. And I don't think I'm all that unusual. In fact, having been a stripper, I was pretty much a, a statistic, wasn't I? With a sexual abuse victim past, that's not uncommon at all. Mm-hmm. Now, did you push the experience of sexual abuse out of your consciousness, uh, conscious memory at first? I did in some ways. My younger abuse was harder to remember because, as I mentioned, I didn't have a language. I wasn't able to put words to the body parts that hurt or that were being used to abuse me. I didn't have, um, 
I didn't have words for feelings, which were conflicting. But I also, in later life, started this inkling of, of stuff would happen. I would get sen sensory memories, which is very typical of a lot of victims of that age. And I had a lot of pain. Um, it's kind of a miracle I was able to conceive a child, frankly, because not much was working by the time I was older, not working properly anyway. And um, in fact, I thought I had the uh, biggest chance of having an ectopic pregnancy, which is probably why I have my daughter today, because I had an ultrasound and I saw that indeed it wasn't an ectopic. So I went ahead and had this baby, <laughs> but um, not much was working. So I had lots of reasons to, to know that something terrible had happened. I felt it in my system. I knew it. It was confirmed later in my medical reports, but and by my mother, who ironically knew it was happening and did nothing about it. She brought me to a doctor often, but I'm not sure she even knew the source of it. Or if she did, she didn't know how to handle it. So that was the early part. And then when I was much older as a teenager, as I said, I would run into these relationships and start these relationships with older men, or I was victim to them and, again, didn't know how to deal with them. So I didn't suppress those. I was fully, uh, fully aware of those for sure. But the younger stuff had faded away into just a general sense of unease and very few memories of childhood happiness across the board, which is, again, very common, I understand. So at what age would you say, was there a moment when the uh, it came surfaced, when you were very clear that it had happened to you when you were very, very young? There were two things that happened to me that were very powerful and they lent themselves to opening up many more memories. Um, the first one was I read a book called My Father's House. Uh, I was about maybe 21, maybe 20, and I was deluged with memories reading that. And again, her experiences with her father, mine was not, mine was with a neighbor, but her experience also started when she was a toddler. And she put words in that book to those experiences. So I, I had a flooding. I remember reading that book, and I, I read it the whole day. I never put it down. I couldn't put it down. And then I just uh, kind of fell apart for a few days and started writing about things. And that's when I started to knit back together my early childhood. And the other memory that I had was I was, and this I, I included this in my book, was um I was looking at my hand in the therapist's office and I had a real sense of ownership of it. That's going to sound really strange to your listeners who don't know what that means. But for somebody who did not feel in her body in her first part of her life and did not feel she owned her body or had a right to say whatever she wanted to do with it her later life, this was a, a monumentous moment. And I looked at it and I thought, I own this hand. This is my hand. It's a nice hand. And I now choose what I'm going to do with it. And by extension, the rest of my body followed with lots of therapy and a, and a great therapist and a bunch of other different methods of dealing with physical trauma as well got woven in later on. But those were the moments I remember that, that everything just kind of changed for me. I love that. I mean, because literally you were giving yourself permission to reclaim yourself. Yeah, literally. Body part by body part. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Has this person ever been confronted? No, I won't give away the end of the book. Uh, I know, I know, Lewis, you, you know what I'm talking about, but it is rather spectacular how he came around one last time in my life. And it's shocking, actually. I, I don't think, I think if you wrote this in a movie, people would be watching this movie going, oh, come on, what are the odds of that? 
<laughs> but but the way in which I am confronted with him one last time in adulthood mm -hmm. is is quite startling. Mm -hmm. He was never confronted in a very open way like that. I had toyed with taking him to court for abuse as I had medical files that stood up to that in my mother's diaries, but ultimately I never did and I chose not to, no. I didn't want to go down there anymore. It was done for me mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. he's, he's, he's either dead right now or elderly, I don't know. Wow, tell us about almost being sold as a sex slave in Trinidad. You like that story, huh? That chapter was really hard to write. <laughs> because again, you read this and you go, are you serious? And and I honestly, I couldn't make this stuff up. It's just too weird. I was auditioned as a typical singer-dancer. They were starting a, a nightclub in Trinidad. They originally didn't tell us the destination. They just said it was a big secret. And it was a big nightclub starting up uh, in, the, in the form of uh, Moulin Rouge or the Lido or the Crazy Horse in Paris, you know, where they've got those women in the wonderful costumes. And, and so we were auditioned in much the same way that they auditioned those girls. And it was a process that took me through a typical audition hall with 80 girls in the room. And I was chosen as one of the eight that they settled on. And it eventually ended up that it was an entire ruse to get girls onto planes to be sold as sex slaves in Trinidad. I had never even heard of this happening at the time. And there's this fallacy too. Oh, Canada, we're so friendly up here. We're so, we're such kind people. Surely we don't do these things. And yes, in fact, it was a Canadian that was heading up this uh, sex slave ring. He'd started in Montreal and he'd had a bit of success before being shut down there. And then he'd moved on to Toronto and, and we were, we were on a plane. We were, we were going down there about to be sold. And I, I won't give away the ending, but eventually it didn't happen. And I'm here today. Luckily. Mm. You won't give away the ending because you want them to find out in the book. <laughs> yes, I do. It's, okay. It's, that's cool. That's cool. Or, or in the movie. <laughs> mm. Wouldn't that be great? I, I honestly, I think this should be a movie. I really do. It's just so. I mean, I I look at it now, I, and I think that is just crazy. But mostly, I look at it, and I'm just grateful to be alive. Mm. Did you go through a period when you hated men? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm blessed. You know, it's funny. I I I don't know if you read that part in the book where I actually. I struggled with this sexuality, of course, in ways that you wouldn't imagine. I, I had a, a massive sex drive and I was very healthy that way and, and very, you know, very much into men. I love men. And I, I thought it was because I had been abused that I was this preoccupied sexual person. And, and I thought that was wrong. And I ended up going to the sports medicine doctor for something totally unrelated. I was having trouble sleeping after my daughter. And he took vials of my blood. He took nine vials of my blood. And the next time I saw him, the tests were back. And I sat down and he said, your hormones are unbelievable. He said, you have one of the highest testosterone levels I have ever seen in a woman. And I said, well, what does that mean? He said, well, your sex drive must be through the roof. And unbeknownst to him, he gave me permission to be who I am without any abuse added in there, without any apology for the way that I am. I am this way naturally. And, and he literally said, it's in your blood. 
Mm. And when he said that, everything just kind of fell together for me. I was at a good time in my life. I just had my daughter. I was just discovering what my body could do in those ways. I'd just given birth to a human being. I was blown away by the whole physical process of that. And now he's giving me permission to be a fully sexual woman. And I thought, wow, that, that like that's gold to me. He also gave me supplements for my insomnia, but I think that other advice is far more valuable. How old were you when you had this experience? I was 36. Wow. So I was, I was just, you know, four years shy of 40, which they say is probably the most pivotal time in a woman's life. I believe it somewhere around there, you know, somewhere between 35 and 45 is a, is a good decade for most women. Uh, if, if they're doing the personal work and, and accepting themselves, I think the body catches up to the brain and the heart is, is all involved as well if you have kids and, it was a good time to be doing some personal work on myself, and he, he gave me that key. The image I'm getting as you speak is that you've gone through several periods in your life when you went from caterpillar to another butterfly. <laughs> yes, I did. And, and I, Oh, yeah, it will go on. It will, sure. yeah. That's beautiful. That's very beautiful. You're constantly evolving. Okay, how many times were you married? <laughs> <laughs> Like married, married, or <laughs> yeah, like married, married, yeah. I went that legal route of marriage twice, twice, okay. yeah. And how about, how about like not married, married? <laughs> I have had uh, two live-in relationships, and I'm on I'm on one of them now. Yeah, very. Good. I, I mean, I'm nine years into this one, so it's a, it, it's this one's this one's going strong. <laughs> And there's good reason for that. It's the first time I've actually been fully transparent with someone. Beautiful. Oh, beautiful to hear. So why did you choose to be a stripper? I guess it kind of chose me. I guess I, I knew I was going to be a stripper from a very early age. It just seemed to wrap up all of the necessary. It was entertainment. It was an ego boost. And it was an opportunity to rework my relationship with men, uh, customer after customer. It's almost like I, I, if I could if I could play that game of of winning without being abused, I, I was winning I was winning over those relationships one man at a time. I don't I don't know if that makes sense to you. Oh, oh yeah 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 absolutely. Yeah, and, and and I'm so grateful for these men for for allowing me to to work out a lot of my issues. A lot of them were incredibly supportive. Now, what did you love and hate about being a stripper? I loved the fact that I could travel almost anywhere in the world and if I if I was auditioning to be a singer often when I was traveling through Europe uh but if I didn't if I ran out of money there was always the option of dancing so and and also in the states I go go danced in the states in New York and New Jersey I worked in Florida I worked in Los Angeles um in the go-go bars there so it was just a great way to to travel and see the world, and I could make up my own hours and work wherever I wanted. Uh, I also loved the camaraderie of the women. I thought that the women, you know, united in trauma or not, we were a pretty blatant bunch with each other. Uh, we could joke about some of the most startling things, and maybe to other people that sounded sad or tragic, but we had an ability to laugh at a lot of things. And that's what I loved about those women, is that they were just very raw and very, very real. And what I didn't like about it, I suppose, is that there's this assumption 
that that all strippers are uh, they have a, a terrible boyfriend at home that takes the money or that they're not uh, intelligent beings or that they don't have different sides to them and while it's true that a lot of these strippers have been abused i don't know of one that hadn't been abused so it's a very typical go-to place for someone who is an abuse victim the other side of it is that we're full human beings. We we have many feelings, and uh, to assume that we don't is it's just a tiresome thing to fight in conversations with men continually. I found it kind of boring after a while. Yeah, oh I, yes, I totally totally agree. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's a lot of work to get them to talk about anything other than the obvious. You know, is that your real name? And how much money do you make? And do you do extras on the side? And do, it's like enough already. That's that's. Why don't we just talk about you? <laughs> so that's exactly what I did. I I listened oh, a lot. When I said uh, that, oh yeah, I agree. I was actually talking about how tedious it can be outside of that setting. Just when you're talking to a woman, to find yourself in a confrontational energy, you know. Yes, very much so. Uh, and that's a whole other subject, Lewis, that you and I could talk about for sure at some other mm. point, because my next book is about how we have done such a disservice to men lately. Not every man is an abuser. Not every man has got it out for you in that way. Mm. And I think giving them a bad rap, you know, some 30 or 40 years into that culture now, we've done ourselves a big disservice. We don't have a lot of good men standing up. You know, but that's another book. Yeah, at least, at least, maybe it's a maybe it's a television series. Uh, you know, it may seem obvious, but I don't think it is totally that you said you didn't meet a stripper who had not been abused. So, what could you articulate about what about being a stripper that is therapeutic in a way, or why women who have been abused? might choose that is that I, I won't i won't finish the sentence i'll let you talk about it as i mentioned i think it is cathartic for you to have that battle over and over again with a man uh look at me desire me you get that kick of feeling special but you get to rewrite the end of the story you're not abused by him so you are admired by him so you can direct the relationship, no matter how brief, uh, with this customer as you see fit. You're in charge in that environment. Ironically, I was never really abused as a stripper. I've been plenty abused in situations as an actor on set or in the casting process. Uh, I've been abused as a woman, leaving my life and, you know, when going back to school or walking the streets or, but, in that environment, it's very much expected that it's going to be sexual already. So there's a certain code of conduct that is, for the most part, followed by the men. And the women are in charge. I love that. Yeah, it's 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 a form of empowerment. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. I wouldn't mm. say it's necessarily the healthiest way to go about doing it. but And I also have to say I'm lucky to be alive. I, I've danced in bars where I was surrounded by bikers and I didn't know what to do, you know, and they invited me to sit down for a drink in between my shows. And if I said yes, then I was going to, I was terrified of being raped and murdered. And if I said no, then they'd probably find me at the end of the night and rape and murder me. So, <laughs> and I, I, you know, I had to negotiate a lot of those tough situations, but men will surprise you. If you give them a purpose, they rise to the occasion. And if you respect them, they usually dish that back out to you too. What a beautiful insight. What a beautiful yeah. insight. What percentage of the men that you meet are intimidated or threatened by your sexuality? 
in my professional life or my personal life? Everything. Well, because, <laughs> because, I mean, you're out in the world. The and you're out in the world. And you're... You want the whole enchilada. I, I guess um, a lot of men in my personal life have been very threatened by me. Yeah. I mean, it's not just that I have this, you know, crazy, wonderful lust for love and life and sex and men and all that, which is true. Um, I'm tall and I'm a redhead and I'm, I'm not, I'm a size 10. I'm not a size three. So I think, and I'm always wearing my high heels, as you know, Lewis, you've known me for years. <laughs> at auditions as an actor. You know, I, I don't ever, I, I think I own three pairs of flats out of about 60 pairs of shoes and I have a shoe thing too. So I, I'm always in high heels. I'm always very formidably dressed and I, and I like that. I flex that. So right away, I can tell the ones that have enough, enough, uh, I guess, personality to keep up with me and those that challenge me because they don't and I, I get under their skin right away. So I'm able to see those coming now that I'm older, uh, a lot better than I used to. But in my professional life, I think I've been pigeonholed often as an actor, uh, as that very strong, ball-busting kind of woman. And the irony is I'm actually really not in my personal life. I'm extremely feminine and I'm somewhat, I would say somewhat submissive to men, not in a way that, you know, socially speaking or, or with my accomplishments, but I like to have a man that leads. That's something that I think a lot of people don't know about me. When I had a, I, I used to write for a magazine here called the Now Magazine and I, I was a very uh, regular writer of their love and sex column. And I was single at the time and I chose to to pen name with my real name uh, just as, as the internet was, was gaining a lot of uh, momentum and this was like 15 years ago I guess and so I would go out on these occasional dates with these men who had googled me and found these stories and they used to show up with one guy showed up with a whip to be used on him <laughs> are you kidding me I'm just having a coffee date with you put that in <laughs> it was hysterical but they had this image in my head from all this stuff that I had oh. written. of course the pictures of me online you know the burlesque and all that stuff that I was going to show up being 10 feet tall and bulletproof and somehow able to put throw them over my knee and <laughs> And it's quite the opposite. I'm not at all that way with men. Well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that you had never heard of the, uh, at Starbucks, they have Whipping Wednesdays. Oh, my goodness. No. Yeah. What when you, that? That's when you You're have a coffee. you about foam, aren't you? No, 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 no. You have a coffee. <laughs> that's when you have your first coffee date with a guy at Starbucks on a Wednesday and he can bring his whip and you could smack him on the ass. <laughs> smart i would charge a lot of money for that like <laughs> <laughs> free i would do that for more than i would i would charge for more than just a latte come on <laughs> i couldn't resist that one Sonia. <laughs> you you gave me such a wonderful opening for it know, so so <laughs> Do you think that men today are struggling to redefine their masculinity? And if so, how do they manifest that? Oh, my goodness. Are they ever? Are they ever? And my heart goes out to them. I just finished doing a wonderful summit called the Men in Masculinity Summit this weekend. And um, that was it's in their second year of doing this. It was hard to gather the men together, first of all. And secondly, to ke to keep the topics rolling on a positive way about what men can do to redefine their masculinity these days. It's, it's such a difficult area. 
I think we've really, and, and this is, you know, I hope women listening are not going to say, well, what is she talking about? You know, we're just on the cusp of finally talking about all this abuse that's out there for women. And I agree. And that is so wonderful. And, I, and I'm there with you. You know, I'm all over that. It's, I have some of my own stories in my book about being on set and being abused and, and in my personal life as well as we've discussed. But that notwithstanding, there are a bunch of men out there that are so eager and willing to help us with this cause and they have virtually nowhere to go. They have no voice. So in the last 30 or so years, as I said, I believe there's this culture of male bashing that has not helped the woman's cause. While we have gained a lot of ground, we have many, many more miles to go as women. We don't have equal pay. We don't have all that stuff. But nowhere does male bashing help our cause. It hasn't given us equal pay. It hasn't given us any kind of equal rights. And it's just damaged our relationships. And it's damaging our relationships now into its second generation. And my daughter is struggling with uh, boys her age and, and trying to see whether or not she even wants a relationship. Children are very wary of that now. Um, and girls are very um, confident and, and all that. And the boys are struggling. You can see it in, in the schools as much as you can see it in your personal life. Dating is, is ridiculous now. A lot of women my age don't even bother to date because the men are, in their words, so broken beyond repair that, you know, they, they, they're not interested. The women are light years ahead of them in many, many ways. And it's true. So it's not our job to fix them, you know, as a date. But, but there is a gulf there that's happening for sure. And I think it's just, it, it's got to be balanced out. It's got to be balanced out. I, I would not want to be raising a son right now. I'll tell you, uh, I, I would I would be struggling with that. I think it was far easier to raise a girl right now. And again, you know, it's not it's not because there's all this abuse stuff that's happening. You know, I, I've warned her of all that stuff too. But and and she almost thinks it's ridiculous because, of course, in her generation, it's like, well, you just tell somebody and it stops. Unfortunately, that's true, but unfortunately, when you get to the courts, it's still not a reality. We're still not believed in the courts, but um, for the most part. But regardless, there's no avenues out there for men and for boys that are established circles of communication that beget positive results in relationships. I love everything you said. I'm a man. How do you think You're I feel? Manly. Yeah. What's that? You're a manly man. You're a very manly man. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. I'm not going to go on at length about this, but as I, I, I respect everything you said, and uh, I see it. I see it around me. And when you said your heart goes out to them, I applaud your compassion. But I don't feel uncomfortable about this time hmm. at, at all. And, and this is going to sound harsh, but what I would say to some of these guys is suck it up. <laughs> so, no, no, really. Suck it up. Stand tall. And if it scares you, good. Yes. Get, get scared, but don't run. Hear what's I, I know. I know what you're talking about for sure. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Hear, yeah. Hear, hear what's coming at you. And here's the opportunity for men to grow, I think. If you yeah. can, if you can stand in the heat of that without letting those attacks define who you are, yes. don't, in other words, don't buy that story, but be open to the fact that there's validity in the source of the story. It's coming from someplace real and for really good reasons, but yeah. you don't have to buy into it. That will enable men to be in a position to have a healthy dialogue with women. 
Yeah, you've, you've actually put it better than I did in that if, if you're not, listen, we're talking about what, 5% of men out there who have been abusers? You know, we're not talking about the entire population of men out there. But unfortunately, that 5%, if it is that high, is getting all the press. And and I just, I, simply put, I just think this is an excellent opportunity for the men in our lives, the fathers, the brothers, the husbands, the cousins, whatever, you know, to come forward and say, okay, this is, this is bull, what's been going on with women. We're so happy you're talking about it now. How can we help? What can I do to support you? Because I think in all of this stuff that we're discussing as women and coming out with our stories, and again, it is vital. And I am not saying that this is a bad thing at all. But what I am saying is it's it's a disservice to men to think that they will not understand and they will not want to help. And I think men love to help. Okay, I'll go along with that. But you know that what you just hit on is right now an issue that goes beyond the dialogue between the sexes. I look around me and people are bombarded with judgments about other people from the media. Mm -hmm. uh, and they immediately get triggered into seeing people through the filter of those judgments. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, and what you're talking about is just another example of it. Now, before you said, you know, that I expressed it better than you. No, I expressed it as a man. You expressed it beautifully as a woman. Well, only because I know that... <laughs> It's funny, at a certain point, we looked around and we realized as women in various um, age groups, that where are the guys? <laughs> like, what, what happened to the guys? We have all kinds of groups for women and we talk and we mingle and, and we, we come together easily as, as a sex. We talk to each other. But men don't have that. They've not been encouraged to have that uh, happen. And, and so men's groups, it's almost an anomaly. And, and the guys are often the first ones to scoff at these things. And, and, and that's kind of sad. But yeah, I, I think it's time for, for us to, to grow up. I think both sexes need to grow up. We need to be talking about the realities of abuse. We need to be talking about the realities of what's happening in relationships now. And we need to be talking equality in a very real on the ground kind of way. And equal pay and all that stuff will follow when, when we're there. I agree. And I think we need to be talking about it to each other. Like yes. men to women, women to men. Because I yes. mean... <laughs> Guys can talk about it, and very often what's going to happen is they're just going to reinforce their own, you know, uh, defense mechanisms against women, yes. as, a, as opposed, I mean, let me be fair, there'll be some who'll uh, arrive at some valuable insights, but I think it's more, it'd be more valuable for men and women to look eye to eye and really talk about this stuff together. Now, you mentioned that a lot of women feeling, I loved what you said, that they don't want to date because there's so many men, I'm laughing, I'm laughing, I'm cruel, but... <laughs> <laughs> so many, so many men are broken. Well, you know what? How do these men manifest their brokenness? Well, I was doing, you know, when I was writing that love and sex column, I, I actually was was celibate for two years. I took a I took a hiatus to, to regroup in like overall, and and I just did coffee dates, which I thought was really was the first time I'd ever actually dated. I'd usually just had relationships with people that we kind of, you know, fell together and it was, and I, I, I ran with those for a while, but this was the first time I'd actually actively dated. So I kind of, you know, typical me, I kind of, I interviewed men 
it wasn't unlike what I did when I was a stripper. And um, the stories that came to light were just sad. Um, a lot of them, you know, didn't get out of marriage alive. They, they, they had children, they had ex-wives, and, and they were struggling with, with how to deal with all of that. So they were not good potential mates that way. They were not ready for a relationship by any means, and they didn't even know it. They just mm. wanted to be with someone. There was that kind of guy, and then there was another guy who had never been married before, and we're talking about a certain age group here, so like 40-ish, uh, who had never been married and never had children, so therefore did not fully understand the responsibilities of my child and and the, the personal growth that happens when you are raising a child. Um, so they were also not good candidates for me because I needed to have somebody that appreciated I put my daughter number one first at all times. And mm. that was something they couldn't get their head around. But those are my experiences. Now I have girlfriends who are in their late 40s and early 50s who are out there on the dating scene and they're just shaking their heads. You know, again, it's we have great, rich social lives as women. We have lots of opportunities that weren't there 20, 30 years ago for us that we're now seizing and we're just biting off as much of life as we can. It's a great time to be a woman. But again, we look around and the men are quieter or somehow not as engaged in in, in this kind of hunger for the next phase of our lives. Well, I, I love you just said that because I think it goes back to an earlier question. I think that's how you're seeing men expressing their intimidation and their fear. I mean, because they're looking at women, they may be physically attracted, but they don't quite know how to negotiate or talk to you because they go, my God, she's so independent. She's got all of this stuff that's going true. on for her. What am I supposed to do? Like, what's my role, right? You know? Yes, that, yes. That kind Very of thing. much so, yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of funny because, you know, at the end of the day, both men and women just want to connect. We just we just want to connect. We just want to have somebody that's a good companion in life. And we don't need you to buy the house anymore or raise the child anymore. Or, you know, it would be great. It's certainly easier with two people. Um, my first seven years with my daughter were on my own. And I can tell you that was that's a blur in my head. That was the hardest thing I've ever done. But, um, you know, yeah, we just want to connect that ultimately it doesn't really matter who has what. I feel the same way as having been a single mom for so long and then in a partnership with somebody who has a very much his own life i'm very independent in that way because I, I again my daughter's my number one priority i you know he sometimes struggles well are we a family or not we, you know what do i have to offer you that you don't already have and the answer to that is quite simply good companionship mm -hmm. yeah meeting as equals you know what i would say to guys who might be threatened or upset about all this is say hey guys celebrate think about it you're not called upon to be the sole breadwinner. You're not yes. called upon that you have to pick up the tab all the time. Hey, man, you know, enjoy it. Yes, very much so. You know? Very much so. Especially at our time in our life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, when you meet men, what attracts you the most and what repels you the most about them? Aha. What attracts me to men is that there is a innate confidence in who they are. I've always said it's not his paycheck that'll attract me. It's, um, you know, if he's a painter, is he, is he going at that full tilt and does that, does he live and breathe what he's doing? That kind of passion is extremely attractive. It doesn't matter if he's, 
you know, the CEO or the guy who's building decks to me. Um, and again, it comes down to, you know, I make a good living on my own. Thank you. And I don't need you to pay my bills. And, and I've never, ever been attracted to men for that. I probably should have been. I probably could have married quite well as, as a younger woman and been far better off than I am now. But that's never what's really interested me. Uh, what's interested me is people who are really rooted in their cause on this planet. And that's very attractive to me. And what repels me is quite the opposite of that, is people that wear masks, people that are not authentic and can't seem to um, really be fully present for everything that, that life is offering them. They're busy hiding. And, and again, at my age or anywhere after about 35, I can't imagine why anyone would want to continue to hide. It just doesn't, it's so strange to me. Uh, I get it that we all have our fears and we're afraid of being judged and we're afraid of, you know, but if you're a good person and we all are pretty much all of us are good people, then just be that. You know, and, and be that as completely as you can be. And I respect and admire that. Otherwise, mm. it just feels like there's, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. <laughs> like if he's not, if he's not seizing it by the horns, then I can't meet him on that level. I won't go down to that level of, of living small. I'm an independent, I'm an independent woman for sure. And I'm pretty fierce and I, I get that I intimidate men. But at a certain point, I like to relax too with my head on someone's shoulder. So. Mm -hmm. I love it. I love it. Shakespeare said, your actions speak so loudly that I cannot hear your words. What things in a man's behavior tell you that he is secure about his masculinity? <laughs> or the opposite, or insecure? Ah, I love the bard. He's so, he's so, he has a way of capturing humanity. Eh? It, it, he he, what he's talking about is the tells that people give you. We call it a tell. In the sexual world, when I was a dancer, uh, a stripper specifically, and then at 40 I, I had my, my own burlesque troupe. So there's a difference between being a stripper and being a burlesque artist. I just learned how to take off my clothes in a art, more artful way as a burlesque entertainer. But also I was in the corporate world. We, my troupe did a lot of shows for, for corporations. Regardless, in that sexual world, when you are coming at people from that sexual place, there is a almost an inability to hide the men from the men's point of view, their sexuality from, from my eyes. So in the sexual, in the strip bars, they would not even try to be macho or, you know, one up me or whatever. They were just there to appreciate my nakedness. And I was very much appreciative that they were paying me to do so. But they had tells. So after the dance was done, often I would talk to them. And what would come out inevitably was their insecurities. They would talk about their insecurities. If a man came in standing up tall and with great posture and had a steadiness to his voice when he spoke, if it didn't get dismantled throughout the evening, uh, uh, you know, in a strip bar, then I would, I could clearly see he was a confident guy. But invariably, when faced with a naked woman, all of their insecurities come <laughs> to the forefront. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's a very rare man that's able to deal with all of that. And, you know, and I look at that. I mean, I'm not, I get it. I'm not your usual woman. I, 
that's why I'm an entertainer and an author and a speaker. But, but uh, yeah, it, it was very easy to poke holes in that. Um, but are the mask that we put on in our daily life in order to be who we are as business people and as, as neighbors and all that, I respect that. There's a time and a place to put on some version of a mask. And I very much appreciate a man who can stand tall and who can speak his truth and who can look you in the eye. Those three things right there are the physical signs of someone who is meeting life at your level in that moment, and you, you need to respect that. Beautifully put. I just thought of something, Sonia. You know, we say, well, why do people still wear masks, gee, you know, at a certain age? You realize if everyone took off their masks, <laughs> that entertainers would be out of work. Totally. I was just going to go there, too. No, no, really. Exactly what uh, I was thinking. Well, why, why would a stand-up comic be necessary anymore? A stand-up <laughs> comic, <laughs> yeah, stand-up comic gets up there and he, and he rips the masks off and people go, ah, they, they love it. But if they don't have masks anymore, they're not going to even laugh anymore. That's true. And the only reason why we get away with saying the things that we do is because people put us under the guise of performer. And that, that in itself is a mask. Absolutely. Exactly. So what I say to people, if you have a mask, please keep it on so I can continue to make money. <laughs> I don't have drama in my house. I get paid to do this. People have drama in their lives. I'm trying to rip mine away and just get paid. For it. So, so why did you write your book? I'm not, I'm not, well, let me give the title. I'm not naked anymore. <laughs> Yeah, it's in the subtitle is Memoirs of a Contemporary Jezebel, which I, I love. My, my girlfriend came up with that. Um, I wrote that book because I guess I'm at a stage in my life where I, I'm really feeling like that half is done. And I wanted to, to write this book. I guess a lot of women are going to relate to this book. Certainly a lot of men are going to be very titillated by it too. But at the end of the day, the messages that are in there, a lot of women are going to be reading it and nodding. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, me too. Oh, gee, that happened to me too. And as I mentioned earlier, yes, I had an inordinate amount of things happen to me or created a bunch of things to happen to me. But getting them all out on paper was very cathartic for me. And it was also a way to say to other people, for God's sake, you know, stop judging yourself at every turn and, and forgive yourself of a lot of things that you are carrying around that are unnecessary now. Just unburden that. It's If you can get 10 years or 20 years earlier to the stage that I'm at now, then good on you. We often say that when people have had a hard time with their childhood, you know, I've spent the last 40 years getting over my first 10 on this planet. And what a waste, really, in a lot of ways. I, I think if I'd had the guidance or the opportunity or, or any form of permission really to unload a lot of my baggage earlier, I probably would have been more successful as an artist and I certainly would have been happier as a human being. It didn't really gel for me until I had my child and then I realized what I wasn't able to do for myself, I would now do for Lena. That's when it really came home and that's when I really thought, okay, part of me is writing this book for her too. So she can look at it and go, all right, my mom got through all of that. And now whatever happens to me, you know, I've got the strength. I'm, I'm living it for her, hopefully. I absolutely love it. I want to address one of the things you said that uh, you spent the last 10, the last 40 getting over the first 10. And you said, what a waste. And I used to feel that way. Mm. I, I've actually come to a point where I think that regret is a totally useless emotion. Because 
No, no, I mean it. I mean it because I I took a couple of very powerful personal development courses. I mean, camps that were transformational. One of them was called Enlightened Wizard Training. And Brilliant. Love that. Oh, my God. Uh, we'll talk about that another time because it really, really was transformational. And we did declarations. And one of the declarations is everything happens for a reason. And that reason is there to serve me. And then another one is I accept and utilize what is. And another one that goes along with those two shoulds do not exist for me. Now, if you take those together, it's embracing the now at every moment in your life and looking at it and saying, this may be painful, it may be confusing, it may be terrifying, but it's also necessary and it's perfect. As it is. It's perfect as it is. As it is, because yeah. what you were talking about, yeah. well, if if it had been different, then blah, blah, blah. But if it had been different, you wouldn't be the person who's on this podcast right now contributing the kind of richness that you're contributing. And I would argue that everything that happened when it did and the way you dealt with it are now enabling you to empower this beautiful young woman in your life. Very much. Yeah, very much. I mean, I wrote the book because it was really like a, okay, that happened. Now, let's move on to the next. And and yeah, and I, I did it a lot of the stuff for her because I wasn't able to do it for me. And surely, you know, I have some regret, but not, I don't spend my time in bed at night thinking, you know, beating myself up for that. The, the process of forgiveness is a multi-layered one and, and it goes through, it spans a lot of time too. And I did forgive the man that first abused me. And I forgive, I forgave the subsequent men in my life that abused me. I forgave my mother for not being able to handle a lot of it uh, as well as, as, as she might have. I don't know. I, she did the best she could. And I'm really convinced of that. But mostly forgiving myself for running headlong into these situations over and over again that was a big step for me. And now I would love to be able to translate that to other people reading the book. So if they're beating themselves up over something or other, then don't don't bother wasting that energy. You know, it's done. It's gone. Write it out. Sing it out. Act it out. Stomp it out. Exercise it out. Do whatever you've got to do. But don't dwell on a lot of it. Just learn and move on. And and again, these are great times. This book would never have flown 25 years ago. Or if it it would have, it would have been in a very different voice. So mm -hmm. it, it's, mm -hmm. it's timely uh, for me and for the planet, I think. And, uh, you know, I've got, I've, it's chock full of these funny stories and you'll be left going, what? This woman is like slightly crazy and absolutely wonderful. <laughs> and, and I get it because I've done, you know, chapter seven and chapter nine myself, you know, I'm very, I'm very pleased to have written this book. It was a lot like a marathon in so many mm. ways. I had written a lot of short stories from these things and then I had turned it into a book form. And it, I had also had a one woman show about it a few years ago as well that was very cathartic for me. So putting it in writing was, was fabulous. And I'm, I'm a writer. I mean, I do love to write. I love the process of writing. If I can serve anyone out there, it would be a huge honor for me. Just read the book and, <laughs> you know, call me up and tell me, great, you've moved on from whatever stage you might have felt stuck in. That's that's big. Sonia, it's not if you can. You are doing it right now. 
I mean, just on this podcast, you're serving and people will get more of it in your book. And so why don't you tell them when the book will launch, how they can get it, etc.? The book is on Amazon.com, or it will be on Amazon.com. It's uh, and it will be a, a Kindle uh, version as well. It's called "I'm Not Naked Anymore: Memoirs of a Contemporary Jezebel." It will be uh, highly recognizable. There's me sitting on a sofa on the cover, looking all looking all primped and pretty for you. And it's it's available on those channels. Or people write to me personally; they're more than welcome to have a signed copy for a slightly higher fee, just so I can I can handle uh, packaging and, and mailing and all that stuff. Well, when you say write to you personally, I mean, do you not have a web, uh, web, a web address where they can? SonyaCote.com, S-O-N-Y-A-C-O-T-E.com is where they can find me. Okay, good. Very good. Where do you see yourself in five years? On a beach in February. Um, okay. <laughs> anything but this weather right now. I am continuing it to write. As I mentioned, I have uh, a book lined up uh, on erotica that will be out by this summer coming, 2018. And I have another book that I've been toying with that will be out in December 2008. No, 2018. Did I say 2018 for both? So this book comes out this year, and then my other two come out next year. And I'm speaking uh, on these various topics, um, sexual abuse survivors, uh, physical confidence and how you can get it, where are men and masculinity going over the next few years, how can we include them in conversations. These are all great topics that I speak about in various organizations. And that's where I'm going with all of this is eventually... I can probably, hopefully, do this from anywhere on the planet. Travel is a big part of my life, so I'm able. To, if I'm able to take my audience with me wherever I go and and do podcasts like this and do speaking engagements around the globe, then I'm happy. That's where I'll be. Beautiful, beautiful. And I know that you will, um, and it's really important that you do. And what is your? Oh, will there be an official launch of the book here in Toronto? You know, it's, that just came up today. I'm one of these people that's like, great, you know, just get the book out and then don't worry about me. And, but yes, in fact, and I'm, it's going to be a Christmas launch. <laughs> so just before Christmas, this thing will be available and I will be having an official launch. I don't know where yet. You're going to have to follow my website. It'll be posted on my website and I'm easily found on Facebook as well under Sonia Cote. So I will be posting it and promoting it and doing live broadcasts and, and all that. And I would love to see you all out there. Oh, yes, absolutely. So, listeners, storytellers, it is Sonia Cote, S-O-N-Y-A-C-O-T-E dot com. Now, besides your own, what is your favorite book? Oh, my goodness. I have so many. I I actually, I've been reading <laughs> on the subject of male and masculinity now, David Data recently. Who, who talks a lot about men and masculinity and, and is, is a real, is a real voice out there for guys, but for women too. Relationships. I, I'm always trying to improve things and I'm on year nine in my relationship now with a wonderful man named Michael and, you know, working on it is always very humbling, but isn't that what it's all about? Right. Relationships are mirrors essentially for ourselves and how we can better ourselves and better the planet and better our kids' lives. And David Data's all over that. I love his voice. He's very Which direct. is there one particular book? There is a couple of them that he's written and I'm just gonna grab the one that I've got on my shelf now. He The Way of the Superior Man 
is probably uh, the one that I would recommend. It's I've read a couple more of his, but that one is it's very it's direct. It's great. The Way of the Superior Man. You'll love his voice. He's like he's talking to you personally. And as for fun, I mean, my my absolute favorite author is uh, David Sedaris. <laughs> the two Davids. Who, who's that? David what? David Sedaris. He's a funny writer. And he's, how do you how do you he, spell his name? S e d a r i s. David Sedaris. He's a comedy writer. He is screamingly funny. Okay. Now, may I share something with you? Absolutely. I told you that I had taken several powerful transformational um, courses, but they were really extended camps. They were five days away from home. The first one was Enlightened Warrior. Mm. One of the most powerful events of that course was an event called Predicament, and it was led by David Data. Fabulous. I was there. I was in it. It was really straight to the juggler, yeah. powerful. And what he did in that we were with him for several hours, there was a lot of purging of powerful emotion. And ultimately, by the end of it, there was a dance going on, emotional dance going on between men and women, acknowledging their pain, what pain they've inflicted on each other, and forgiveness. Right. It was, as a matter of fact, I believe I've got the way of the superior man as an audio course from David Data. Isn't that funny? And that's what I mentioned. <laughs> no, it's not. It's he's, not. He's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. Yes, he is. And there are no coincidences. There are no there coincidences. Are none. You're absolutely right. Do you have any favorite quotes? Oh, I have a lot of favorite quotes, I guess. But but um... you're only you're only allowed one. This is my <laughs> this is my world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I guess my favorite one is uh, Maya Angelou. When people show you who they are, believe them the first time. Ooh, I love that. Okay, let me write that down. Any final thoughts for our storytellers? I'm very passionate about the need for kindness out there. I think, uh, you know, as an artist and an actor, of course, the whole Weinstein things that are hitting the news are, as we've discussed, they're stirring up a lot of emotions for men and women, myself included. And I think uh, not always good emotions. <laughs> Some are quite uh, angry and, and have every right to be. But, but really, in our day-to-day -day actions, I think it's really vital that we take a breath before we speak. We live in a full disclosure world now, and we live in an instant gratification world. And we forget that taking a moment or looking at someone in the eye or considering that there may be something that is off in their life right now and having compassion instead of impatience is vital. We have a very strange political climate right now uh, in the States especially, and it's, it's difficult for people to navigate that. Uh, there's a lot of bad news being bombarded at us, and I personally choose not to watch the news anymore. It's just simply too painful, uh, and I can't do anything about it unless I choose to run for office, which I don't at the moment. But I think kindness can be found in the tiniest of moments, and it grows. So if all of us did it for you know a few encounters every single day, within the space of a few months, we'd have this planet turned around. I... Totally, totally agree. And I thank you so much for bringing this to a close with that powerful statement. And I also want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for how much you've contributed today to me, 
to the world, to or certainly immediately to the storytellers listening. Thank you so much, Lewis. I really appreciate being here with you. You are a special human being, and I, I'm totally honored to be here. Thank you, and I received that. Thank you, storytellers, for spending your valuable time today with me and Sonia Cote. I trust that you got as much richness out of this conversation as I did. Sonia is a truly inspiring and remarkable woman. Please pay this forward. Let people know that they can enjoy this on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at the website changeyourstorypodcast.com. And remember to take advantage of the free gift waiting for you on that website, a downloadable free ebook that I created for you entitled Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. We spoke a bit about books today. While we always talk about books on this podcast, I'm passionate about them. I know that they're life-changing. Take advantage of the offer from our sponsor, Audible. Go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power and choose any audiobook of your choice that you can download absolutely free. You can choose from more than 180,000 titles and also get access for an entire month for free to all of Audible service. One of the strongest things that I took from today's talk with Sonia is her powerful sense of forgiveness, of kindness, of openness. And she's a person who's been through some horrible experiences that could very well have left her an angry and vengeful person. But they didn't. And I think we can take a real lesson from that. She has the strength and the wisdom to understand that when we forgive people who hurt us, it's not for them, it's for us. Because when we hold on to the resentment, even the hatred, we're really prisoners to those negative emotions. I have a great mentor who said, and I'll never forget this, staying angry at someone is the equivalent of drinking poison and thinking that the other person will die. So, look at your own life in the next week and ask yourself, are there deep grudges, painful resentments, unresolved negative feelings towards other people that you're holding on to for what it seems to be holding on to for dear life? If so, have the courage to make that decision to let them go. And begin by asking, how can I change my story and change my life? Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.